In this afternoon's session, we're talking about the government of the church or church authority, authority in the church. And I've said that church authority is inherent in one and one person only, and that is, of course, in none other than our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of His church. However, He vests His authority in a foundational way in 12 men, originally those apostles and, uh, and the prophets that were connected with them in terms of laying the foundation for the church by the giving to us of the Holy Scripture. And so today, we are a true church if we are an apostolic church. That is, if we are true to that foundation that was laid, that, that foundation of Jesus Christ laid for us by the apostles and prophets, that is, the New Testament prophets. Of course, uh, assuming all of the Old Testament revelation that came before it. But this morning, or this afternoon rather, we move into talking about local church government. We move from universal church government, that is Christ and His apostles, into a local church realm and talking about local church government uh, over the next few weeks being vested in pastors and elders on the one hand and in the congregation on the other. And it's there that I want to start this afternoon and talk to you about congregationalism or congregational government. Um, 1646 to 1648, a group of um, Puritan ministers up in New England, here in the U.S., uh, met uh, to hammer out a doctrinal statement that particularly had to do with um, church government. They had by and large, been in agreement with a statement that had just been put out um, right before then, the Westminster Confession of Faith. But they did have some disagreements on the issues, the issue of church government. And so they met there, and in 19, in, 19, in 1648, they um, created what's come to be known as the Cambridge Platform. Um, the English Puritans, um, Congregationalists, borrowed from that uh, heavily for their own uh, statement. But uh, this, this statement of faith um, puts it this way in terms of church government. They say, quote, The government of the church is a mixed government. In respect to Christ, the head and king of the church, and the sovereign power residing in him and exercised by him, it is a monarchy. With respect to the body or the brotherhood of the church and the power from Christ granted unto them, it resembles a democracy. In respect of the presbytery, that is the pastors and the elders of the church, and the power committed to them, it is an aristocracy. And that was their uh, view, their attempt to try to harmonize all that the Bible said about the government of the church. Um, by the use of the term democracy to describe a church, that what they had in mind was the congregational nature of the church's governance, the congregational nature of the church's governance. And what they said was, carefully I think, they said that, it, that the church resembles 
a democracy. Though, in fact, the church is not a democracy, not in any kind of a sense of a pure democracy. Um, for one thing, and here's, here's where I want to talk about some distinctions here before we move into talking about it more further from the Scripture. Um, the church is not a democracy in the sense that the church are a people who are under the Spirit's control, or they are filled by the Holy Spirit, so that when a church comes together like ours, a local congregation, mere human opinions are of no merit. The Spirit of God rules, and He rules through Spirit-filled people. And so you can see that... um, this type of, this understanding of church government also went along uh, very um, naturally with the idea that the church is comprised of believers, spirit-filled people, assuming the conversion of the membership. Secondly, the church is not a pure democracy because the church is under the rule of the apostles, right? We talked about this last week, y'all remember? The apostles are ruling our church. We don't get to decide what we believe and what we think about issues. We are under the authority of the scriptures as given to us by the apostles. Our rule here as a congregation is merely applicatory, taking the word of God and applying it to our particular situation. So... For example, we have no right to choose for pastors for our church or deacons, for that matter, just anybody we want, willy-nilly, just kind of whoever we like best or whoever's most popular or whoever we think will do the best job. Our decision-making on that is bound. It is controlled by what the apostles themselves have revealed about the uh, qualifications for those offices. So in that sense, it is not a democracy. It is also under the leadership of pastors. And the congregation is admonished in the Scriptures, commanded to submit themselves to the elders and those who teach and preach the Word of God. And finally, it is all under the ultimate leadership of Jesus Christ Himself, so that We as a church, we as church members are not autonomous um, decision makers in ourselves. We are attempting to discern the mind and heart of Jesus Christ. And only with those very important qualifications would we liken church government to um, a democracy. So the question then is, what does the Bible teach about congregational involvement in the authority that Christ exerts over His church? What does the New Testament say about congregational involvement? I'd like you to turn to five passages. We won't spend a long, long time on each one, but um, this is the first one. Matthew chapter 18. And beginning in verse 15, you know the passage well, but listen and notice what it says, especially in terms of... uh, of the rule and the authority that is, that is within the, the church. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So here's a situation in which there is a sin between people, and uh, that sin is unconfessed. 
It's uh, undealt with. And he says, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he will, does not listen, take one or two others along with you. So there's a, um, an expanding um, circle here. And do this in order that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Of course, that was the standard of the Old Testament for the truthfulness of a claim, right? Two or three witnesses. But verse 17, if he refuses to listen to you, tell it to the who? Are you with me? You tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So just kind of foundationally, I think what we see in, in Matthew chapter 18 seems to be that the church is the final court of appeal in terms of these kinds of very difficult and very uh, momentous occasions in the life of the church when, uh, if the time comes when they have to uh, publicly censure a brother or even remove that person from the membership, um, which is what it means to let him be a Gentile. Um, the assumption is that, you know, the assumption in this is that the church is the new people of God. And so if you're a Gentile, you're outside of the people of God. Um, so it seems then that the church, the assembly of God's people, is the final court of appeal. He does not say to them, take it to the bishop or take it to the pope or take it to the presbytery or the pastors or the deacons. The ultimate court, rather, is the church. And that's sort of a foundational passage because it is um, from the Lord and it's a direct command in terms of how the church is to operate. Now, of course, it is possible then to understand the word church here as a reference to representatives of the church, people who stand for the church. Um, and so I think what we have to do is continue to look in the rest of the New Testament for a pattern to understand what this looks like and what it means. And so I'm going to ask you to turn to a second passage, and that is uh, Acts chapter 6, all right? Acts 6. Acts 6, verses 2 to 5. Again, I know a pretty familiar passage to you guys. But putting this all together, we want to let each passage sort of build on, on the ones that came before. Verse 2, and we're looking again at the, at the authority um, that is within the, the church. And the twelve, this is the twelve apostles, okay? They summoned the full number of the disciples... And that, I think, is a key phrase. So the apostles um, have a decision before them to make, um, or it's a decision that the church needs to make. And so in, in, in this decision, they, they call the whole number, the full number of the disciples, which is hard to understand as merely the representatives of the church. Um, and... Um, especially in distinction, the, the full disciples in distinction from the 12. So you've got the 12, they're the leaders of this church, and now you've got the full number of the disciples being gathered together. And when this whole congregation is assembled, it says, verse number uh, 2, they say to them, it is right that, it is not right, excuse me, 
that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And another thing you see in this, in this passage is that this, the selection is made from among the, I mean, by, upon the initiative of the congregation. The apostles do not say to the congregation, here are some men that we have picked. Now, you know, you should affirm them. They rather say, you pick, and then we will affirm or confirm. So the selection of deacons takes place from within the full number of the disciples. So there is a congregational involvement in the picking of these seven men. We're not told exactly the the process that the congregation went through to narrow it down to seven or to, to get there, but we are told enough to know that this comes from within the congregation itself. At least that's what it, certainly what it seems to be in this case. And verses 4 and 5, he says, But we will continue, uh, we will devote ourselves, excuse me, to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, man full of the faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Decanor, Timon, Par. Par- Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And notice again that uh, the saying pleased the whole gathering. So a couple of uh, phrases in here seem to indicate the entire congregation. Um, now, one of the challenges, in and, and you, you probably know as well as I do, that church government is a disputed thing, especially, you know, the universal church government, we're all hopefully on the same page. But when you talk about local church government, there are Episcopal churches, which kind of are a top-down sort of um, understanding. The Catholic Church would be an example of this, right, with the Pope, the single Pope, and then the bishops and the cardinals and all of that. Um, so this is a kind of a, 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 a top-down system. Struggling for words here. Um, and then there are several sort of bottom-up systems, if you will, or a couple of them, one being Presbyterianism, which sees the representatives of the church as, um, as really standing for the church. And uh, others see um, that, that, within the, that those elders are within the local congregation, which is um, what I'm trying to um, put forth here, or what I believe that the Scripture seems to uphold. Um, but in, in spite of the, the differences among churches um, there... Um, <clears throat> One of the challenges for all interpretations is the presence of the apostles. And uh, because now we're getting into a situation that we don't have, right? We talked about last week, I hope it was somewhat clear that apostles are foundational and unique within the life of the church. And I think if we miss that, we kind of get off in, we open the door to kind of go wrong in a lot of ways. Um, But if that is the case, then obviously in the book of Acts, with the uh, presence of the apostles, we have a a, uh, a complicating factor. Uh, these men were handpicked eyewitnesses with the gift of miracles. Their names are inscribed on the 12 uh, foundation stones. Uh, they are given such a full measure of the Spirit that they can give us direct revelation from God. Um, and yet here are men of that stature, apostles. And I th- here's why I think even though it's a complicating factor, it's also an enlightening factor. Because here are men of that stature apostles no less. We're not talking merely 
elders, although they were elders in the Jerusalem church, but the apostles um, are giving this responsibility to the entire congregation to select from among them men who would fill the office of deacon. So it seems to me that, that the role of the congregation is held quite highly in the estimation of the New Testament. Then if we go on and look at the epistles, we see some examples of the kind of authority that Jesus ascribed to the church in Matthew chapter 18. One of the uh, places to look is in 1 Corinthians. And so I'm going to ask you to turn to the first chapter there, and then we'll look at the fifth chapter. 1 Corinthians. Okay, everybody awake? Breathe a little bit. <sighs> Get that chicken in there. All right, so 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm sorry, chapter 1. Let's start in chapter 1. And here's what we read. It's the introduction, the salutation. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus rather, and our brother Sosthenes. Verse 2, to the church, the church of God which is in Corinth. Or to say it another way, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. So the first thing to note is that Paul is writing this letter not simply to the elders of the church, but to the church itself, the whole church. That is, those who are sanctified, those who are saints, which throughout the New Testament refers not merely to a group of super-Christians within the congregation, but to all of the members of the church. We are all, by the grace of God, saints in that we are set apart for the Lord and washed by the blood of Christ. In fact, Paul makes it explicit that saints is a reference to all Christians. He says, uh, still in verse 2 here, he says that the Corinthians were called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So there's only one Lord. He's the Lord of all of His people. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord is a saint in the Lord and is also, if they live in, in Corinth and they're a part of that congregation, then they are the recipients of this letter that Paul is writing. Saints are those who call upon the name of the Lord, in other words, the whole church. And the assumption is that the church, uh, the members of the church do call upon the name of the Lord. So again, you can see... Um, the understanding that we have that the church is comprised of believers, that is, those who are saints, those who call upon the name of the Lord. And verse number 5, chapter 5, now with that background, we begin to look at uh, an application, one application of church discipline. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I keep skipping a page, there it is. And in this passage, uh, we read this, verse number 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. It's a grave sin that's taking place and the church has apparently not done anything about it. Verse 2, he says, And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who have, has done this be removed from among you, which is the essence at the heart of what it means to be um, 
for, for a person to be disciplined by a church the, in the an ultimate sense. It is removal from that communion, that fellowship. And then he says, verse 3, for though absent in body, this is Paul speaking, of course, though absent in body from you in Corinth, I am present in spirit. And if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This, as I said, is again a reference to church discipline. You see it most clearly in verse 3, the phrase, um, deliver him over to Satan, um, is probably also another reference to church discipline, that he is put out of the realm of the people of God and into the realm of Satan. He's not put there by the congregation. The congregation is merely acknowledging what in fact seems to be the case, and they ought to do it with mourning and with sadness. Um, so that's his instruction. Now, the important thing, I think, in this is the context in which this takes place. And it's found in verse number 4. So take a look again at verse 4 at the context in which discipline takes place. And it's threefold. First, he says this should take place when all those saints that he talked about are assembled, when they're gathered. So this takes place in the gathering of the entire congregation, all of those who are saints who call upon the name of the Lord, not in their absence, but in their presence. Secondly, this very difficult thing takes place, verse 4, when Paul says, when my spirit is present with you. And this is, of course, a reference to Paul's unique authority as a, what? As an apostle. Okay, you're still tracking. Good. Excelente. My spirit is present with you, or as he says in verse 3, even though my body is not there in Corinth, my spirit is. And this is very helpful because this is exactly the situation in which we find ourselves as a local church today. We don't have an apostle present here with us physically, bodily, but nevertheless we are able to have the spirit of the apostles of Jesus Christ with all of that authority that He vested in them present in our congregation when we are gathered together and guided by their testimony. And that was what was happening here. This congregation gathered together, guided by the testimony of the apostles, was able to um, perform this function. So again, the context is the congregation is gathered, the apostles are present in spirit through their testimony. And thirdly, verse 4 again, look at the end of verse 4. He says, when you are assembled, my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus. That is where we started this whole series, right? That Jesus Christ is the ultimate authority. If Jesus doesn't do this, <laughs> then it is not done. The church may say, oh, you're in or you're out. But if Jesus doesn't do it, it's not so. Now, what he is saying, though, is this, and this is, this is amazing. 
that when the whole church is gathered, when the local congregation is gathered, and they are upholding the apostolic testimony, it is none other than an expression of the authority of Jesus Christ Himself exercised by that congregation. And that is a pretty high thing to say about any gathering of human beings. And it's not something that we ought to take um, uh, lightly. In fact, it ought to make what we do when we gather here all the more solemn and holy and amazing. Now, this is not to say that everything a congregation does is perfect. That would be a wrong assumption. But the New Testament assumes, when it writes to churches, that every believer is filled with the Holy Spirit with, um, to an extent and with a, a power and clarity that is beyond anything that ever came before. This is, the, this is the significance of the day of Pentecost. It wasn't just another thing in the church. It was a, um, a new thing. Not new in the sense that the Holy Spirit had never been active in the church in the Old Testament, but new in the sense of the measure of the outpouring of the Spirit on all flesh, on old and young, on men and women, and uh, the, the New Testament assumes that kind of outpouring of the Spirit upon all of the people of God in this new covenant reality era of which the Old Testament was only a shadow. And um, so, but it also recognizes, the New Testament also recognizes that some believers are more filled with the Spirit than others. Are we, would we agree with that? Uh, not saying that there's different measures of the Holy Spirit. You can't divide the Holy Spirit up or pour Him out like water and you can get a little Spirit or a lot of the Spirit. No, not that we have more or less of the Spirit, but that the Spirit has more or less of us, so to speak. That we are more controlled by the Spirit or less controlled by the Spirit that the Spirit of God grips our hearts and minds and, and directs our thinking to a greater or a lesser degree. And that is true within even within the New Testament church. Paul calls all these Corinthians saints. But you look at some of the Corinthians and they don't seem to be as directed by the Holy Spirit as we might hope. So it's clear that, that uh, there is more or less control uh, by the Holy Spirit, and that's why you have passages, I think, like 2 Corinthians chapter 2. So that's our next passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and beginning in uh, verse number, well, let me just, let me give the background. Here's another church discipline situation. The Corinthian church had some real struggles in their midst. Um, some people, you know, I think especially older commentators used to wonder whether this was the same person as the guy in 1 Corinthians. Not sure, but I don't think so. Seems to be a different sort of situation. This situation seemed to be uh, perhaps even a church leader, but, but somebody influential who had created kind of a faction 
within the church, sowing discord against Paul's leadership. And uh, the church had confronted him, and he had come to a point of repentance by this time. And yet the church was um, was uh, tempted to, to not forgive him. And, and so instead of taking it personally, Paul admonishes the church to forgive and to restore this brother. And so that's, that's the context. Verse number five, he says, Now if anyone has caused pain, he doesn't name the person by name, right? He's very gracious, but he says, If anyone has caused pain, he has not caused it, he has caused it not to me. He's just not going to take personal offense. But he said, in some measure, he, not to put it too severely, he's caused pain to all of you. And then he says this, verse 6, For such a person, for that person, such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. What is helpful for us is the description of church discipline in this passage. And that is that Paul calls it a discipline or a punishment by the majority. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that it was a bare majority. You know, 50% of the congregation plus one. There is wisdom always in seeking a broader consensus as a church. Um, if we all have the same spirit, there ought to be a greater, um, a greater unanimity than you know a bare majority most of the time. Especially if it is a congregation filled with people who who are um, growing in the Word and, and letting the Word guide their thinking and leading letting the Spirit lead them. But this does presume some things that are very helpful when he talks about the discipline or the punishment um, meted out on this sinning brother by the majority of the congregation. It's helpful in that it presumes that there was, first of all, some definite number of people within that congregation. I mean, how do you know a majority if you don't know who are, what people you're counting? So there seemed to be some sense of belongingness can we say it that way? Belongingness. I don't even know if that's a word. That's not a word, is it? Belongedness. Membership might be too official of a word, but there was some sort of sense of these people are in, these people are with us, and this brother, this person, these people are not. So there was a sense of that. Secondly, it also presumes that the various members of the congregation have expressed their understanding of what ought to be done. And thirdly, that the overall decision to discipline this brother has been affirmed by the greater part of that number. So it is a punishment by the majority. And the concession is made there because we recognize that that though we are all filled with the Spirit, if we belong to Christ, that our understanding is not always what it ought to be. And sometimes we have to concede to our brothers and sisters and acknowledge humbly, hey, maybe I've got a blind spot here. And if the majority of the people of God um, seeking the face of God under the authority of the apostles led by Jesus Christ in prayer, 
you know, are going this another direction, then then maybe I just need to be humble enough to to acknowledge that and let the Lord lead the church that way. So I think that is why you have a passage like this. That's the way this data helps explain everything else that we read in the New Testament. Um, going along with this, you have other passages. I won't have you turn there, but like Galatians chapter 1, where Paul teaches that churches should exercise this kind of authority and discipline even over heretical preachers. Remember, that's the passage where he says, if someone comes to you preaching another gospel, you should put him out. Don't have anything to do with him. Um, He should be accursed to you. This kind of repeated pattern in connection with our Lord's command in Matthew chapter 18 recognizes that Christ's authority is vested in the consensus of the local congregation in applying Christ's rule. And that's why our church was founded as a congregational church. Okay. Now, there's a lot more that could be said um, and a lot of ramifications of you know, church relations, but um, I want to just lay the groundwork here and, uh, and now make some applications and consider what does this mean for us if this is what the Scripture teaches. I'm going to give you several applications. I think I have four, maybe five. Five, okay? Number one, congregational authority highlights the importance of local church belonging. Congregational authority highlights the importance of belonging to a local church, or we might say local church membership. In other words, if it's not clear who's in, then it's going to be very, it's not going to be very clear how to put someone, what? Someone out. In other words, there was some clear recognition of Christian fellowship among those early churches. And it may be that to a great degree that was tied to who was able to partake of the Lord's Supper. Uh, But in any case, there was a sense in which that there was a belonging. I belong to the people of God here in this particular locality. And I'm accountable to the people of God. In other words, there's a danger, I think, for floater floater Christians. You know what I mean by that? You all know floater Christians? Christians who don't belong anywhere. They just kind of go here, they go there. Maybe they don't go anywhere. They're Christians, at least, you know, as far as we know. I mean, they say they're Christians, but they don't have really a church anywhere. Maybe they say they don't even believe in meeting together with a church. And and what that does is that puts them in danger, in danger of being outside this God-ordained means of our security. Um, a, A means through which we admonish one another and rebuke and reprove one another. We know each other. We teach each other. We, we don't just live our Christian lives independently, but we, we live our lives in front of each other. We watch each other's families and, our, and marriages and our kids grow up and, and choices that we make and we see each other's needs and we give financially or we, we reach out in some way. It, it highlights the importance of belonging. Um, this kind of of teaching, and especially the authority that is inherent um, in the gathered, spirit-filled, apostle, 
submitted, submitted to the Apostles' Church. That's not the right way to say it, but you know what I mean. Okay, that's the first application. Number two. Number two, this highlights the necessity for every church member to be right with God and filled with the Holy Spirit. If congregationalism is valid, it highlights the necessity of every church member to be right with God as much as we can't know how and to be submitted to the Holy Spirit. Does it not? Wouldn't you not say that's important if congregationalism is so? It is incredibly important. Only Spirit-filled people, people full of repentance towards sin and faith in God and yielded to the Holy Spirit, only Spirit-filled people are going to be able to make spiritual decisions. When the church becomes carnal, congregationalism devolves into nothing more than mob rule. And it can be a really ugly thing. And it's no wonder that some people turn away from congregationalism. The majority of ungodliness is still just ungodliness, isn't it? Doesn't matter if 75% of the people vote for it. When the majority of a local congregation is unbelieving or backslidden, that congregation often just gets what it deserves. And that's a scary thought. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul blames the congregation for not only tolerating bad preachers and teachers, but for seeking out such men to lead them. Right? You remember the passage? 1 Timothy 4.3, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But listen to this. The people... They will, uh, having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And it is essential for a church to be yielded to the leading and the control of the Holy Spirit. Because New Testament congregations have a say in who their teachers are, they have only themselves to blame when they have bad, false teachers. Maybe I shouldn't say only themselves, but they, that, is, that is where the blame heavily lies. In other words, friends, I say to you, North Houston Baptist Church, the kind of pastors that you have here will in a large measure be a reflection of the kind of people that you are. So it is essential, it is vital for the health of this congregation that by and large it be made up of people who are right with God, who are growing in the knowledge of the Lord, who are yielded to the Holy Spirit, who don't go on walking in deadness and hardness and coldness because the whole church will suffer. Number three. Number three, this doctrine highlights the importance of the congregations having some means of dismissing a heretical or wayward pastor. This highlights the necessity, or the importance rather, of the congregations having some means of dismissing a wayward or heretical pastor. I remember... Um, 
years ago hearing about a church, a church that has that was having some very uh, serious um, moral and ethical questions surrounding their pastoral leadership. And the congregation members were being pressured to express their unquestioning support for their pastor. That no question should be asked, or at least it was looked down upon, it was very frowned upon. No one should ask any questions about what the pastor is doing or, or, or you know, some accusations that have come up. Now, the Bible admonishes us to submit to our elders, yes. The Bible admonishes us not to receive an accusation against an elder without great care and concern, without two or three witnesses. But on the other hand, the congregation must never tolerate a so-called apostle or even an angel from heaven who preaches any other gospel to you than that which you have received. When you hear the word of God, your ultimate allegiance must not be to any pastor or preacher, but to the word of God itself. Right? Acknowledging that, 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 that you know, your, your hope is that you have pastors and teachers who are being careful with the Word of God. And where you have that, you ought to hold on to it with both hands as tight as you can. I'm not trying to say that in any kind of self-serving way, but I mean, I mean for all of us, wherever we go, wherever you end up living. But a congregation is held responsible in the Word of God for listening to preachers and teachers who are going against the Scriptures. And that congregation should have a way of confronting and putting that uh, brother out, even as an elder or even as a pastor, if, um, if the accusations of, of unbelief or, or um, ungodliness are, are valid. Okay, number four. Number four, this doctrine highlights the necessity of occasional public exhortation and reproof in the accountability relationship that we have as a congregation. And what I'm speaking about here is church discipline. When there are clear violations of God's law, when those matters are serious and open and the brother or sister is unrepentant about them, I'm not talking about somebody who, who doesn't, they have a, a very shallow understanding of the word and they're willing to be taught but a brother or sister who just persists in false teaching or in wrong, ungodly living, and after much prayer and pleading and beseeching and private exhortation that a church um, is involved with, brother to brother, sister to sister, the congregation is finally commanded to admonish and to reprove that person as a whole. There are people who recoil from this kind of ministry of a congregation because it feels so heavy-handed in our modern American Western sort of mindset. You know, well, somebody I was talking to earlier was talking about how nicey-nice Americans tend to be. Now it doesn't always seem like that to us, but 
Maybe if you're from someplace else, it seems like, you know, we all just go along, get along to go along, and even while we're fighting with each other, I don't know. It's, but in any case, it, it, this is not, this kind of a public censure as a, as a body, as a congregation, is not, is not and may, must never be done out of a lack of love. No, it's an act of love. It's an act of love that a congregation ought to and must be involved in to stand between a brother or sister and their own destruction and say, no, wait, don't go this way, please. And when that brother or sister finally persists to not allow them to think that there is any recognition that they're okay with God while they walk straight away from God. This highlights the importance of that kind of ministry. And finally, number five, it highlights the importance of our being involved in the lives of the rest of the congregation. It highlights the importance of our being involved in each other's lives. I'm not talking about being a nosy parker, um, you all know what that is? You know, just a nosy person? Is that, is that a term? Um, I'm not talking about, you know, uh, inserting yourself into other people's business in a heavy-handed kind of way, but, but really reaching out to one another, opening ourselves up to one another, not just isolating ourselves from one another, but sharing what's going on in your life with your brothers and sisters, and asking what's going on in the lives of brothers and sisters, and being willing to listen, to draw them out, to not sit back and say, well, that's just the pastor's job. Especially if this understanding is valid, that kind of ministry ought to be characteristic of everyone in the congregation to an extent. Yeah, the Lord does put pastors in congregations to shepherd, the sheep, but he puts every one of us in a congregation to have a ministry one with another of exhortation and encouragement and rebuke and teaching and prayer and giving and all the things that we do for one another. But listen, it will never, ever happen if you isolate yourself or your family isolates themselves from the needs and the lives of other brothers and sisters. I encourage you to admonish each other, to teach each other, to pray for each other, to know what's going on in one another's lives, to reach out and be reachable, not to run off quickly, not to close yourself off, and not to hold yourself away. In the end, I'm reminded of the image that we have in the Word of God that we are a body, and that the body is made up of many parts, and each part actively contributes to the working together of the whole body, and all of it to the glory of God. And so congregation, I encourage you and admonish you to take these things to heart and to remember the importance of what God has called us here to. Something that's almost beyond comprehension. A holy calling indeed to be a member of a local 